Well, again, why preach on Revelation when life is so controversial and people argue about this and we have an election year and, I mean, there are sides on just about every issue. There are sides on Revelation, pre-dispensation, post, mid-trib, premillennial, amillennial. I mean, why would we even focus on the Revelation when there's so much upheaval and unrest? What? Oh, kids praise. You want to go, kids? Any kids who want to go to kids praise are welcome to or you can stay in here. All right, thanks. And that was even controversial. (laughs) Well, I think um, we felt led to preach on Revelation for the same reason that Jesus gave the Revelation to the Apostle John. Because because the church was in such unrest in John's day, and there was so much upheaval, and there was so much fear and apprehension. Because of that, Jesus gave them a revelation of himself and the future. You see, so many people were responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ during the Apostle John's day, and after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. For those next decades, people were responding so much, especially in Asia Minor, where is modern-day Western Turkey, where these churches were located. And uh, they were responding so much that the emperor over the Roman Empire, Titus Flavius Domitian, was being threatened because he wanted to be worshipped as Lord and God alone, and not some other God or some other Savior. So he felt threatened. Furthermore, the pagan temples that they worshipped in that area were being shut down because so many were worshipping in the Church of Christ. And so there was a lot of desperation. Persecution broke out against the Christians. And so we begin Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. His servants, the children of God, needed to know what was upcoming because there was such apprehension and fear. However, Leon Morris, pastor, wrote this. He said, This church looked and longed for the promised consummation when God's will would be perfectly done throughout the whole earth, but nothing happened, even though Jesus said what which must soon take place. To a church perplexed by such problems, revelation was written. We must not think of it as a kind of intellectual puzzle sent to a relaxed church with time on its hands and an inclination for solving mysteries like let's figure out when when exactly Jesus will return or at least the the approximate time you know that will be interesting let's get these charts out and people focus so much on these puzzles and mysteries that wasn't the primary reason why Revelation was written though it was sent to a little persecuted frustrated church John wrote to meet the need of that church in other words to give the hope, hope of Jesus Christ to this church. The churches were also finding themselves compromising because they feared persecution and opposition, and they became more like the culture so that they would fit in so they wouldn't stand out and be persecuted. So there's a threat of compromise. Jesus wanted to assure the church that he remained in complete control no matter how chaotic the world looked. He was the one who reigned victorious over every king and kingdom, both now and forevermore. So from the very get-go in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, 
we read that God is in control via the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there to minister to his church. Revelation 1.4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the king of kings. In this first sentence, Jesus reveals himself through the Holy Trinity, the one who is and was and is and is to come, that's God the Father, to the seven, the seven spirits, which is really the sevenfold spirit ministering to the seven churches. God's eyes are in every church. He's everywhere. God is here through his spirit at Countryside Covenant. He's also at First Nazarene Church, across town. He's also at the Baptist Church through his spirit. And through Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, first one to rise from the dead. And, and, and so Jesus wanted to assure his church through John's heavenly vision that he was there with them and for them. He is, he, not the emperor, Domitian, is the one who sits on the throne over every king and kingdom, over every situation, no matter what's going on in the world and no matter what's going on in our lives. He's enthroned. Helmet Thelike uh, in The Waiting Father wrote, when the drama of history is over, Jesus Christ will stand alone upon the stage. All the great figures of history, Pharaoh, Alexander the Great, Charlemagne, Winston Churchill, Stalin, Johnson, uh, Mao Zedong, will realize that they have been bit actors in a drama produced by another. He's the one sitting on the throne. He's the one who sent his son, Jesus. Well, he, he's the one who came to us, not only to reign, but first of all, to forgive our sin. In verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He not only saved us from sin, but he saved us for purpose. In verse 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He is the one who reigns victorious. But he is also the one who will return victorious. He will come again soon. Verse 7, though, he's, uh, in the vision John saw, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Lord Almighty. I watched history in the making in the sports world two weeks ago when I saw in this next picture uh, this guy, a Budka or something on top, he was from a country playing the guy on the lower left from, I think, Germany. And, uh, and he, the guy on the bottom was really frustrated because he was down two sets. He was favored to win in this semifinal, but he was down two sets, best out of five sets. So this guy was on top, was, was just plummeting. Uh, he was, what's the word? pummeling him and he was frustrated the guy on the bottom but wouldn't you know 
First time ever in semifinal, the guy on the bottom came back being two sets down and won three sets to two sets and took the match. In the finals, he met the guy on top, a guy named Team from, I think, Austria or Australia. And so they went at it, and Team on the top was down two sets to zero going into the final set, but he came back three sets in a row, won three sets to two. Never happened before in the semifinal and the final match. Both of them were completely frustrated when they were losing, ready to give up. I was ready to give up. In fact, I turned the TV off thinking, this is a slaughter. It's not even a match to watch. But when he turned it on later, the matches were still going on, and the upsets took place. Why do I tell you that? Because as we look around the world right now, it can seem as though we Christians are being defeated. We're being pummeled. We're being annihilated. Our voices in America seem to be smaller and smaller, less influence. And we feel like, God, what's going on here? Less and less people show up to church, especially after COVID. And also we're afraid that for our children and our grandchildren, thinking that if they face an uncertain future, and if Christianity becomes less and less popular in America, then we fear for them. And we think, this doesn't feel like victory. But we must never forget that Jesus has already won the victory when he died and rose again. He is already sitting on the throne in his heavenly kingdom. He is already promising to return victorious for us. But we're not in the final game of the final set yet. Just wait for the great upset. When he returns victorious, we will be the ones standing on the victor's podium because Jesus has already won. We know the end of the story. Does it mean that we won't suffer because he's victorious? Does it mean that we won't be discouraged at times? Not at all. We go through the very same things unbelievers go through, except we have someone who is fighting for us. Third thing, he redeems our suffering. Jesus redeems our suffering, gives purpose to our suffering. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice how he couples suffering and kingdom together. It seems that suffering and kingdom go hand in hand. But even when we're suffering, it will be used for his glory. He's promised to use it. Romans 8, 28, we all know that verse by heart. For God works what? All things out for the good, for those who love the Lord, called according to his purpose. But how about verse 29? For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We're being conformed through our suffering. We're being um, Refined, We're becoming more and more like Jesus even as we're walking through the valleys and the darkness and the pain. As we commit it to the Lord, he refines us and makes us more Christ-like. 
Protestant Christians in China were two million strong in 1960, and then came intense persecution and martyrdom. And they grew in the next 40 years from two million to 60 million, despite the persecution. And today, 100 million believers in China. Nepal, in 1960, baptized 25 believers. All of those who were baptized were sent to prison. In the next 25 years, that number of 25 grew to 25,000 believers in Nepal, despite the persecution. And who would have guessed 100 years ago that believers in the two-thirds world would outnumber believers in the one-third Western capitalist industrialized nations today? And they don't have the blessings, material blessings that we have in the West. Damtao Keflu is in the next picture, and you'll on the top left. He's one of the missionaries that we support, and he oversees crew or campus crusade in the entire continent of Africa. He and his family are stationed at headquarters, crusade headquarters in Florida, and he'll come and visit with us here in the next few months, Lord willing, to share his testimony. But during the time of COVID this past several months, in a three-month window, I believe he told me when I talked to him two days ago, Campus Crusade got 61 television stations, three radio stations, Facebook, WhatsApp, Messenger, Google Handout, um, YouTube, Instagram, Vodacom, Video Play, iPhone, everystudent.com, and Zoom, and they blitzed the continents of Africa and in the Middle East with a Jesus film during COVID. He said, what, what else could we do during COVID? We, we, people in these countries, they were relegated to their homes or sequestered to their homes, and if they had the internet or they had a phone, then they could watch the internet. Some of them had TVs, and we just blitzed them, and they had radios, and during a three-month period, these are the statistics. One, their goal was 100 million people to hear the presentation through the Jesus film. Five million souls to make decisions for Christ was their prayer, and one million multiplying disciples to be raised up. And, and this, is, uh, this was their goal up through June. And this is what happened. Rather than one million hearing, uh, or 100 and 100 million, 166 million, 260,000 heard. Uh, not quite 5 million received Christ, but they're, on, they're still growing. 4,388,000 uh, received Christ. Uh, close to a million are following, continuing to follow and get discipled. And they planted 720 churches in just a short amount of time because of COVID-19. And here we are complaining that we have to socially distance and wear masks in America. And we, once again, we get really irritated by that. Could it be that God is doing, using this for his glory? Of, and of course, Dam Tao said, of course he is. God is using COVID-19 to grow his kingdom part of revelation is the gospel will go out to all the world before he returns and it's happening via social media and television and who would have guessed that the str struggling church in these seven churches 
would continue today while the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire crumbled to extinction. The mothers of disciples James and John, referred to as the sons of thunder, once requested that her sons sit on the right hand and left hand side of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. A decade later, 44 AD, James was the first one executed under King Herod's reign, and John in 93 AD found himself banished to a remote island in Patmos where he received this revelation. They're suffering. John, along with the churches, could have been highly discouraged by all this persecution. But Jesus pulled back the curtain for John and revealed to him the truth of who he is, how he's reigning, and how he will reign forevermore, but how he also redeems suffering through this book of Revelation. And this is the description he gave him of himself in verse 12. I turned around, John said, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance." The person revealed himself was none other than the victorious, risen Lord, Savior, and King. This is what Revelation is about. It's about the risen Lord, who is victorious, rather than a puzzle to figure out the future. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This book is nothing other than the victorious Jesus. He came to earth the first time as a humble, earthly carpenter. But the risen, exalted, and glorified king and judge of the world is who he is now. Well, why would Jesus reveal why would Jesus reveal himself to the church then in such confusing symbolic language? Why wouldn't he be more clear-cut so that there wouldn't be so much mass confusion? In fact, there are many people I've talked to who said I don't even touch the book of Revelation. It's so confusing. Why would I go there, much less preach on it or teach on it? Well, I'll give you a few reasons. Why all the symbolism? First of all, this early church would not have been confused in the same way that we would think, that we are. Jesus came to reveal himself as an apocalypse, which means unveiling or revealing. He didn't come as an apocrypha, which means hidden, like hidden books, the apocrypha. He came as an apocalypse. And he came to confirm and reveal himself through biblical truth, not conceal it. And so we read in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, obey it, what is written in it, because the time is near. Jesus gave 
the church is a word to hear and to take to heart and to obey. And they would have understood it. He wouldn't have given them, you know, like a mysterious, symbolic, figure this one out, I bet you can't. Revelation 1.1, the revelation from Jesus Christ gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Daniel 12. Daniel, when he rolled up, uh, he was told to roll up and seal the words of the scroll after his prophecy until the time comes to an end. But here in Revelation, they're told the exact opposite. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this scroll, because the time is near. He said, unroll it, read it, proclaim it, let everyone know the truth. And we can know the truth in Revelation. It's not as confusing as you might think. In fact, Jesus said, utilize Scripture to interpret Revelation. If we, utilize, if we know God's Word, then Revelation won't be that confusing. There are 300 Old Testament references contained in the book of Revelation. 70% of Revelation are Old Testament allusions. The early Christians would have known their Old Testament prophetic writings. And so the symbolism in Revelation wouldn't have been that confusing to them. We can, all, we can also understand uh, the symbolism and it, because it affirms and reaffirms what we know in Scripture. For example, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. In the end times, Jesus said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be increase in famines and earthquakes and plagues and false teachers. We know this. Guess what? That is all included like an outline in the book of Revelation using symbolism. Secondly, the early believers would have used apocalyptic literature and language that they were all familiar with to communicate with each other for the purpose of protecting themselves against the Roman Empire who, persecuting them. And Jesus would communicate in these same words of apocalyptic language. The church would have been aware of it. For, for example, in some countries today, you might be arrested or even killed by the mention of the name Jesus, or Trinity, or church, or Bible, or communion, or baptism, or any such words like this. If you utter them in certain countries, you'll be arrested, questioned, and perhaps even put to death. And so missionaries use code language. In fact, I get I get um, emails from missionaries even today, and they use code language. For example, they use the word Papa instead of God or Heavenly Father. They use my Papa. And so we have this understanding with various words because they don't want it to be intercepted. It's sort of like apocalyptic language. Thirdly, images were powerful ways to communicate timeless truths to people of all ages uh, to people from any different place these images communicate powerfully on the emotional level it's as if you went to a museum in Chicago and you see a bunch of people staring at this huge portrait by Van Gogh or something You're all st and it, it's moving you but it's moving little kids it's moving senior adults it's moving people from all over different the world because images do that. 
Songs do that. Literature does that. For example, if you've read The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, or Tape Letters, or Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, or even more modern-day allegory, The Shack, it moves you, and it, it teaches you the truth using allegory, but it is truth that it portrays. Or when we see pictures like this, what's that on the left? What is that? A bottle of... Is that what poison looks like? A skull and crossbone? No, it's a symbol of what poison is, and it emits an emotion when we see a bottle like that. We know what that means. Or when we look at the lion and the lamb used of Jesus, we don't say, that, is that what Jesus looks like? Is that who you follow, a lion and little sheepy savior? No, but they're symbols for Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears like this. Is that what he's going to look like when we see him face to face? If, if so, I might run in the opposite direction with a, if he has a sword protruding from his mouth. And if he's glowing and like a terrestrial being, he might, but I, I think it's just symbolism, apocalyptic symbolism. The white hair doesn't mean that he is Caucasian, it means that he is, in fact, the Ancient of Days. Unlike Mike Yell and me, he is the Ancient of Days. Uh, and so that's instead of the world system, so in the book of Revelation, we'll come across terms like this, and it'll become clear to us what they mean, Lord willing. Instead of Jesus saying, well, this worldly system with dictators, sinful that is opposing you, he uses the word, the whore of Babylon, now that referred to, for the early first Christians, it referred to the Roman Empire, but later on it meant Nazi Germany, or it might mean terrorism today, or even Antifa, the whore of Babylon that opposes the kingdom of God. Or the powerful dictator. You could say these powerful dictators will arise. No, it's used the beast or the antichrist. Instead of the devil, we, uh, Revelation uses the ancient serpent and the great dragon. Instead of the witnessing faithful church, it speaks of the lampstands. Instead of the people of God, Re Revelation uses the bride of the lamb. Instead of sinfulness or incompleteness, Revelation uses the number six, which is not quite seven and complete. Instead of divine perfection or completeness, it uses numbers like seven or 12 or 1,000. And it always means fullness or completeness. It's a symbolic number meaning something altogether different rather than a literal number. Blessed are, is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it. This is a blessing. There are seven blessings throughout the book of Revelation. First one is in verse 3. The last one is in the last chapter. There are seven bowls, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven lampstands, seven letters, seven blessings. And there are 49 different sets of seven, meaning this is complete. This is perfect. It doesn't mean that there will be literally seven. There's not just seven churches. So to conclude, why preach on Revelation? Full of confusing and controversial symbolism. Because Revelation lifts up Jesus, the one who reigns victorious over every king and kingdom, both now and forever. Because Revelation lets us know that he will redeem our suffering. He is the winner. He is victorious. And thirdly, 
he will return victorious. It gives us a certain future with hope. Life can be frightening. Life can be confusing for all of us at times. What do we do with that fear? Where do we go with it, and how do we think? The book of Revelation gives us language. It gives us emotional responses to the fear that we may encounter. For women who all of a sudden discover that they are pregnant unexpectedly and they don't know what to do with this pregnancy, they can become very confused, frightened, and very alone. A young woman needs support and hope and direction. Where does she turn? Well, we support Christ-exalted ministries like Open Door Pregnancy. And we have the director here this morning. And where is she? There she is. And her husband's back there. I remembered your name this time, Fed. All right. And so she's going to come and share with you what is sitting right outside this window. More about that. And we have the privilege to see if this this works this thing. Thanks, Neely. Thank you. Can you hear me? It's working. All right. It didn't work last time, so here we go. I'm Neely Pickard. I've been at Open Door Pregnancy Care Center for five years now. Um, kind of a funny story. I told God I was never moving to Hutchinson, Kansas, and he said, daughter of mine, watch what I can do. <laughs> didn't know what a pregnancy center was. Um, my mom had called me and said, what do you think about this job? And I said, nope, not for me. She said, why don't you pray about it and see what God says? So five years later, here I am as the director of, of Open Door Pregnancy, and now we have this big, beautiful ICU mobile unit. So we offer lots of services in Hutchinson, but had just been praying um, to be able to widen our horizons. We see clients that come into Hutch from McPherson and from some of the outlying areas and, and had prayed for something new and a new vision. And um, in fact, we had spent $5,000 on um, meeting with an architect and having building plans drawn up because we were just going to expand in Hutch. And I'm sitting at my desk one day praying about this building and what this will look like, and God said, this isn't the plan I have for Open Door. And I'm like, uh, we just spent $5,000. <laughs> Are you sure this isn't the plan? <laughs> so I had a board meeting and dreaded telling my board we just spent $5,000 that I don't think this is. And they said, we actually need to talk to you about something we don't think this is the plan for Open Door. Thank you, Jesus, for telling all of us the same thing, right? The way he works is just amazing. And so I had been to some conferences and seen a mobile unit, and I thought, this is what we need. This is what we need to reach the communities around us that don't have a pregnancy center because we know how important not just the pregnancy test, but the ultrasound. That's what it's really about. We've got these girls that can buy a dollar pregnancy test at the dollar store, but they can't go anywhere and get a free ultrasound. Um, and so they come to us, and we are able to offer a life-affirming ultrasound. And so we teach them that this isn't just a blob of tissue growing inside their tummy, but it is a, a real life with a heartbeat. And we determine gestational age and that there is a viable pregnancy. And nine out of ten women that are able to see the ultrasound and see the heartbeat end up choosing life for their babies. So I just want to, the mobile has only been in McPherson now six or seven weeks. We've only gone one week without seeing clients. So super exciting. We are doing pregnancy tests and or ultrasounds every week that we're here. Um, so we haven't had any quote unquote abortion determined that we know of that we've seen 
on the mobile yet, but we know that all of our clients are pretty abortion vulnerable, um, especially with COVID and loss of jobs, and most of our clientele are poverty level. Um, so just a lot going on in their life. Maybe mom comes on and this is four or five number for babies and just she says, I can't handle another one. Um, so I had a story like that in, in Hutch in the center the other day. And, and this is why we do what we do. I had this client that came in and I just happened to be the only one that day that was available for the pregnancy test. And she had just been in about a year earlier for a pregnancy test. And she came in and she's had a lot going on in her life. She has a seven-month-old baby and lost her mom the week before to lung cancer and just stressed. Um, her fiance is the only one working full-time. She's a stay-at-home mom and she said, you know, I really just want to bond with the baby that I have. I don't know that I can take care of another one right now. Mourning the loss of her mom and that relationship and, and just said, I'm just, I'm not sure. She said, I never thought that I would think abortion was the option, but but I just need to know, she said, I already know that I'm pregnant, but, but I just want to go over the procedures of what abortion would be if I choose that route. So we do talk all three options. If a mom comes in like that, we talk about adoption, we talk about parenting, and we will go over abortion procedures and risks depending on how far along mom is. So she was about 10 weeks along. She would have had to have a surgical abortion instead of a chemical, so it wouldn't just be going in and taking the pills like what they, in their mind, seems easy, um, but it would be actual surgical and removing of the baby. And so we, we went through all of that. We went through the risks associated, and she said, this is why I came in here, because I knew no matter what I chose, you would help me along the way. And I said, absolutely, that's what we're all about. So I said, let's do an ultrasound while you're here. And she said, she got big tears in her eyes, and she said, I know if I see the ultrasound, I won't be able to go through with the abortion. Praise Jesus. Those were the words that we wanted to hear. So we did the ultrasound. She was 10 weeks along, exactly like we had figured. She held the little seven-month-old Ezekiel on her arm, on her lap while she had the ultrasound done, and, and she kept saying, that's my baby. And she kept referring to, to her little boy, saying, that's your little brother or sister in there. And so not always do we have that outcome. Um, you know, there are some that go through with the abortion, but we're still there for post-abortion healing as well. So if anybody ever needs um, post-abortion healing, we, we definitely have that, and that's something that we'll offer on the mobile in groups probably as well or even one-on-one. -on -one. We have a great video series and Bible study that goes with that. One in every three women in our churches over the age of 50 are post-abortive, and so we know that it's a real thing and want to be able to walk through whatever life throws our way. Um, none of us would be here without God's grace and mercy, and I know that's true even in my own life. Sometimes I think, God, are you sure you have the right person for this job? But um, you know, we just use our testimony and meet our clients where they're at. So we are going to do baby bottles today. We've got a table set up out in the foyer. This is a huge fundraiser for us. We are just church and private donor funded. So we don't have any restrictions on being able to share the gospel with our clients, which is amazing. We don't take grant money. We don't take state government funds. So we do get to to meet them where they're at in life, but then share the gospel as well. So I know y'all did baby bottles last summer. We were raising money for the purchase of the mobile unit. So that is paid for $165,000. So thank you for that. That's huge. But now obviously ongoing cost. We're in the middle of trying to hire a part-time nurse manager to oversee the nurses. Um, if anybody's a nurse and interested in talking to me, we always need nurses, but we always need volunteers as well also. So um, take a take a baby bottle. You can fill it with cash change or checks and then bring it back. Four weeks, Pastor, is that about what we'll do? 
bring it back to the church in about four weeks. Um, and then we do have the mobile unit with us, so I will be out there. So please come out and tour the mobile if you've not seen it before. Thank you again for having me this morning. This is no surprise to her. We're going to kickstart the baby bottle uh, campaign off by giving her a, a check for $3,000. Um, so, yeah. Not her, but the ministry. So let's go out for lunch afterwards, Neely. Yeah. Oh, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for Neely, and uh, just thank you for her leadership at Open Doors. And, and the, how many uh, uh, people that they touch through this ministry, Lord, it literally beats your heart, Lord, uh, your love for people. Continue to bless them and utilize the gifts that come in through this church uh, for your kingdom ministry. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>